0: And to those watching online, you're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Hosting today's program is Darren Bax. He is the Senior Research Fellow in Agricultural Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. With that, we can begin our program. Darren?
1: Thank you, Andrew. Um, I want to thank everyone for coming today and those watching online and on C SPAN. So 45 years ago, Congress passed the Endangered Species Act to help promote the conservation of species. When the federal government deems an animal or a plant is threatened or endangered with the extinction, it is placed on a list known as the Endangered Species List. And then there are significant regulations that kick in to protect these listed species. Unfortunately, if we were just looking at the goal of the law to protect species, the law hasn't worked that well. Only about 3% of species have been recovered and delisted. They're on the endangered species list. Senator John Barrasso provided an excellent summary of the law's record. Quote, as a doctor, if I admit 100 patients to the hospital and only three recover enough under my medical treatment to be discharged, I would deserve to lose my medical license. End quote. Congress needs to take action to better achieve the goals of the ESA. However, there are some things that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service is part of Interior and NOAA Fisheries, which is part of Commerce. So both of those agencies can do a better job implementing the law on its own. And that includes promoting transparency and consistency in how the law is enforced. Better implementation of the law will mean better results for species protection. The Fish and Wildlife Service and NOAA Fisheries should therefore be commending – should be commended for proposing rules to improve implementation of the ESA. And it's my honor today to introduce the deputy secretary of the U.S. Department of the Interior, David Bernhardt, who will be discussing this important work. President Trump nominated Bernhardt – Mr. Bernhardt, David uh, (laughs) – for the deputy secretary position in April 2017, and the U.S. Senate confirmed him in July 2017. He was sworn in by Secretary Zinke on August 1, 2017. As Deputy Secretary, Bernhardt is the second-highest-ranking official at the Interior Department, with statutory responsibilities as the chief chief operating officer of an agency of more than 70,000 employees and an annual budget of approximately $12 billion. Bernhardt is an avid hunter and angler and recently served on the Board of Game and Inland Fisheries for the Commonwealth of Virginia. He has in-depth experience in legal matters, concerning active regulations and rulemakings, with years of legal experience in both the government and the private sector. His expertise ranges from the Endangered Species Act to outer continental leases, from mining royalties to Indian affairs. From 2001 to 2009, he held several positions within the Department of Interior, including serving as a solicitor. In that capacity, he led the International Boundary Commission between the United States and Canada and was responsible, along with his Canadian counterpart, for maintaining the 5,525-mile international boundary between the two nations. Prior to that, he served then-Secretary Norton as a deputy solicitor, deputy chief of, state, of staff, and counselor to the secretary, and as director of congressional legislative affairs and counsel to the secretary. Please join me in welcoming the Deputy Secretary of the Interior, David Bernhardt.
0: Good afternoon. Uh, Darren, thank you for the kind introduction. Um, I'm very fortunate that I get to get up every day and work on keeping the promises that Secretary Zinke and the President have made to the American people regarding the Department of the Interior. And for those of you that are not familiar with the Department, its various agencies are tasked with managing about one in every five acres of land in the United States along with um, responsibilities for the Outer Continental Shelf and uh, even our U.S. territories and possessions. Our various bureaus are very diverse. Uh, The National Park Service has hundreds of millions of visitors every year. Uh, While our Bureau of Reclamation delivers uh, water to millions of um, people uh, throughout the West every day. Um, to do our job, as Darren said, we have about 70,000 employees in winter months and many more uh, during the uh, summer season, actually. Every day, our folks are doing very important work, uh, whether it's fighting fires or maintaining stream gauges. And having a chance to participate in public service is really a great privilege and a solemn responsibility. It's a particular privilege to work for a president who is unwilling to accept mediocre outcomes uh, merely because they're supported by conventional wisdom, and instead sets clear goals and challenges for us at the department to achieve our objectives. From my perspective, um, empowering people to think outside of the box is what leadership is about. Enabling people to strive for better outcomes for the American people is also what leadership is about. And the President has these qualities, and so does Ryan Zinke. Uh, Secretary Zinke is a decisive leader who listens uh, to information, makes a decision, and then simply expects us to carry out that decision. Um, Those of us in agencies, like Interior, have each taken a oath um, to well and faithfully execute our duties under the law and the Constitution, and in addition, as political uh, appointees, um, we are charged with the uh, reality that to the extent that we have discretion under the law, we carry out the promises that the president made to the new American people. And that focus is required because under our constitutional system, uh, the president's objectives actually represent the will of the people. And that means that interior, our goals are focused on the president's goals. And uh, the secretary is working hard, for example, to achieve a um park improvement infrastructure uh, legislation initiative because the president and he are focused on striving to have a conservation agenda that's second only to Theodore Roosevelt likewise the secretary is working to reorganize the Department of in the Interior so that we are better focused on achieving the objections the objectives of the American people and uh, delivering more responsibility and accountability and our land – at our front lines. Last month, we reduced our regional boundaries, uh, in our internal regional management system, from 49 regions uh, to 12 unified regions for most of our bureaus. Now, in addition, at Interior, we are commi- continuing our effort to find common-sense solutions and improvements to our regulatory and permitting regimes. The President was incredibly clear both as a candidate and initially after office through the issuance of executive orders of specific reforms he hoped to see at interior he was very specific and he was very detailed on interior's responsibilities and we have been actively engaged in the deregulatory front Um, we are intent on maintaining our environmental standards but we are equally intent on leaving a reliable efficient and defensible regulatory regime in place that better serves the American people than what we found when we walked into the Department. And I'm confident we'll be able to do this. It is in this regard that I was asked to visit with you today about the administration of the Endangered Species Act and provide my personal perspective. Now, um, as as was stated, uh, we jointly proposed regulations with the Department of Interior and Regarding certain sections of the Act. Um, Our proposal focuses primarily on two sections, Section 4 and Section 7. Section 4 primarily deals with listing and delisting of species as well as the designation of critical habitat. Section 7 of the Act deals with what we call interagency consultation, and it's a place where the uh, rubber really hits the road in the implementation of the It's an area where um, action agencies, other federal agencies, are required to ensure that their actions are unlikely to jeopardize the continued existence of a species or um, uh, not likely to um, destroy or adversely modify designated critical habitat. And both of these areas are areas that um, are – were ripe for – review. Now, because I believe anyone who actually takes the time to attend a discussion on implementing the Endangered Species Act already has a pretty good sense of what our regulations do, I thought it would be most useful to you today to share with you um, my perspective of trying to find um, outcomes on executive agency decisions rather than simply going through the regulations that you can already read. Um, on. Our website so as i said uh, there are about seventy thousand folks at the department of the interior and by the time a decision gets to my desk um one of two things has happened either a lot of people have decided that they don't want to make the decision or they simply don't have the authority to do so it's generally the first as a result like a lot of interior uh, folks that have to make decisions uh, when I'm expected to address a problem, it generally has three elements. And I've tried to frame these elements in a Venn diagram. Let's see if I can make it show up. There we go. Um, generally, and it's not always the case, but generally, um, the elements that I'm uh, tasked with are the following. Uh, the green circle, which uh, denotes our, our our legal framework, uh, and the law. Um, the other fact, or sorry, the other um, uh, element that really tends to matter to us are facts or data, and that 's depicted in the yellow circle and then, in reality, in many instances, we have an element of decision space, and um, that is um, the ground upon which we can issue uh, we can uh, exercise some degree of discretion and i have I've have framed that under the red circle now, like I said, some questions involve all three elements, there is occasionally simply a purely legal question that it only is in law or purely a factual question that simply is um, – uh, would be in the yellow element or maybe it's something that's simply a policy uh, that we can uh, – a policy question that we can address that really impacts neither law or facts. But generally, we're working uh, on all three buckets. and. Uh, Since you're all interested in the application of the Endangered Species Act, what I thought I would do with you, and we'll see if this works, is I would try to apply these these three concepts and how they interrelate to one of the more um, important questions a secretary has to make um, in terms of the application of the Endangered Species Act, and that is determining whether a species is an endangered species or a threatened species. Now that decision, that decision of whether something is an endangered species or a threatened threatened species is driven by statute. So as a result, we probably should start with the statute itself. Now this is Section 4A of the statute, and um, this is really where uh, the rubber hits the road for the determination of whether. Uh, something is or is not a listed species. And as you can see up there, um, the statute is clear about what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to by regulation, determine whether something is an endangered species or an endangered species because of any of the five factors. The use of any, as you can imagine, means that we don't get to cons- we don't need to have a species meet more than one factor, it's any. Now, beyond, um, beyond that, a Congress did not precisely say how we should make the determination other than um, we should make our de- determination by regulation. Now, later, they did provide a little detail on that. But in addition to this, um, other parts of the statute um, are parts where Congress has told us um, what data or particular data or facts that we should use to make those listing decisions, and these these are in statute, and this is another section of the statute. And as you can see from this, um, the yellow – I think it's yellow – highlights that we are supposed to make our decision on listing or delisting solely on the basis of the best um, scientific and commercial data available to the Secretary. they also ask, also ask us to do some other things, and I put those in orange, because they're a little bit uh, factual and they're also a little bit uh, red. If we were to go back to our um, Venn diagram, now all of that is pretty straightforward, it seems like, except for the faction, except for the fact that Congress also defined the terms endangered species, and threatened species, and even species. Now, what I've done here is just pulled up one definition, the definition of threatened species. And the reason I put it up here is um, Congress, um, in using the terms species, threatened species, and endangered species, didn't precisely use the terms of art the biologists used. Instead, they came up with their own definitions, and that's why I've highlighted them in green, um, and each of those definitions um, has um, some of its own issues, and here for the definition of threatened species, when I say issues, here's what I mean. Since they're not bio, purely biological terms, when they, when they made this decision, they used terms that I've identified and read, like the word likely to become an endangered species within the foreseeable future throughout all of a a significant portion of its range. Now, why did I highlight those in red? The reason I highlighted those in red is each of those terms has a degree of ambiguity associated with it. And it is that ambiguity um, or the gaps that Congress left that has um, led to most or many of the the controversies, the controversies in cases uh, surrounding, l- surrounding listing um, designations for, for a good amount of time. And that is because it is in those areas where something is sort of red that um, agencies must use the most care to ensure that their interpretations are re- well-grounded in the law. And actually, in the facts, um, as a matter of fact, the Obama administration um, defined the word "significant" um, during their um, their administration. And just uh, I think two weeks ago, on August twenty-fourth, a district court threw out their interpret- legal interpretation and said it was an impermissible reading of the statute. Um, and it is those areas, the the where these terms are, that we end up. Um, having a degree of controversy and the reason I say that is because here's what I want you to recognize back to this Venn diagram it when when federal administrators stray too far uh, into the red when they um, ignore the green that's problematic that's where we end up with uh, courts explaining to us that we haven't um, we haven't followed the law Where we seek purely to apply our policy outcome or we uh, conversely simply rely on the facts and ignore the law, that also is an area where we um, have impermissibly uh, engaged. And so what what this was designed to do, this Venn diagram, is a simple way to say that um, when I think of how – we should pl- apply the Endangered Species Act and how we should have properly implemented, I say we need to stay as close as possible in the orange. We have to be true to the facts, we have to be true to the law, and we have to use um, policy views that are grounded in the context of what the Act says. Now. What's interesting about the law is, in many instances, it doesn't explain a lot about the how. And it is in those areas where Congress has left the how to us that we have some room uh, to interpret the statute and, 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 and perhaps really frame uh, innovative approaches. For example, Congress wasn't terribly clear in exactly how we should engage in interagency consultation. They told us that we provide assistance to the agencies and consult with them. They didn't spend a lot of detail on how. That's an area, that's an area where we can look at and see how can we do better. And so what we've done is we've taken our goals and said let's let's focus on the red and orange portions of the Um, application of the ESA, take 40 years of experiences with the Act, think outside the box, put a team of ESA experts together, and try to develop uh, parameters that stay within the Orange. Now, I think our regulatory package, um, particularly the uh, Section 7 package, uh, really demonstrates the drafting team's effort to try and innovate. Um they I think they looked at how might we analyze effects better? Are there alternative methods of consultation uh, that merit consideration? And uh, they even, you know, came up with questions like, should we even uh, apply uh, consultation efforts to certain agencies? These are interesting questions, and I think we'll see lots of comments. As I was preparing for the discussion today, I went to... Um, the website and looked, and it looked like so far we have about 11,500 plus uh, comments on our, our, our Section 7 package. And that is, um, that is good. The more comments we get, the better record we'll have. Um, hopefully the more outside of thinking we'll get from folks, the better understanding we'll have not only of our ideas but of their ideas. And from my perspective, the goal at the end of the day is to walk out, walk out and be ensured that we are operating as close to the orange as possible. Um, now I know that many of you are aware that the public comment period for these rules uh, closes around uh, September 24th, and I hope everybody does their best uh, to get their comments in before them. Um, Because I believe that better implementation will benefit both the species and the people that live near them, as well as all of us who can have unnecessary resources better focused on – resources better focused on conservation than on unnecessary burdens. And with that, I'll turn it back.
1: There are a lot of critics also to some of these proposed rules. Um, how would you respond to those that are claiming that your proposed rules are going to gut the Endangered Species Act? How do I respond?
0: Yeah, how would you? Um, I say that's laughable. Um, I think that uh, the entire discussion here was, was um, you know, it indicates quite seriously that we uh, we respect the law. We understand the law, um, and we understand the parameters of the law. The law requires that federal agencies uh, ensure that their activities are not likely to jeopardize. That standard doesn't change. The law uh, requires that certain factors are looked at to make the listing decision. Um, Those those factors won't change. Um, it, it, It ensures what sort of... Information must be used to make those determinations. That doesn't change. Environmental standards are not changing. What's changing is how we interpret – sorry, how we uh, uh, go about making our decisions, potentially, um, in less burdensome ways. And um, how closely we're hewing uh, to the orange in some areas where it's clear that the prior administration uh, strayed um, too far outside the green and into the pure red.
1: So let's talk about the kind of the, the, the benefits. Um, let's start with the species themselves. Some of the proposals that you have. How do you see what you're proposing? How will that benefit the
0: species? Well, I think there's a there's a number of things. First off, um, I think one of the things that will happen with these regs is if they're applied, and we still have to see um, see where they ultimately end up. But I think what we're going to see is a significant deconflicting of the act. Here's one example. Um, We've watched the National Marine Fisheries Service over the years uh, issue um, special 4-D rules, they're called, for uh, threatened species. They do a special rule regarding the take of a threatened species each time they list a a species. Rather than what we've done, uh, in most instances, we've tended to list a threatened species and apply the take provisions of the threatened species to be equal. To those of endangered species, and I think that that is um, at one time might have made sense because they had a lot of new listings and they didn't have the um, ability to figure out what they wanted to do with them individually for the services. But the services learned that look, sometimes these provisions are completely unnecessary and create conflict. Other times they can create they can use a special forty rule and actually encourage conservation efforts. And so now they'll have the ability to do that um, uh, all the time. And I think that they think that ultimately that will lead to better outcomes. I also think that for each amount of energy that we spend on unnecessary paperwork, unnecessary reviews, that's time that the service uh, doesn't have to devote to species conservation. And um, I think that they're very um, pleased with the provisions that are very innovative in minimizing consultations, um, the time that they take by allowing them to incorporate documents um, by reference. Um, Those types of mechanical things all mean that the resources we have in the service can be better focused on species without giving up any of the environmental requirements that we currently have. Okay, In addition to the species, but
1: how about like the ESA is, course, of, of infamous for having an impact on property owners. There's kind of an antagonistic um, relationship between property owners and federal government, oftentimes. How would the proposed rules, anyway, you know,
0: address some of these issues for property owners and help families, communities? Sure. So for people, I mean, here, here, here's the first view I have, and that is um, that number one, we need to hone, treat to the law. So just like the concept of significant was found to be impermissible, it's my uh, belief that the agencies, um, the prior administrations view the designation of unoccupied critical habitat, um, designating critical habitat that was not occupied by the species presently, may never have been, may never have even had the features essential to conservation, and may never will, designating that before um, designating occupied critical occupied habitat is critical, um, created conflict. Um, And I also think that it was an effort uh, to achieve a policy objective that they had, a legitimate policy objective, but that that effort hewed way too far into the red and outside the green. Our proposal moves that back into the orange. And I think what what I'm hopeful of is that we will have these regulations as they're implemented. Um, What we will see is that people will realize that we have a more effective, quicker uh, determination of issues that are easily resolved and more defensible, and what that means to individuals is that the length of time a consultation takes will be more predictable. The length of time um, of questioning what burdens need to be applied uh, will be more predictable and more certain, and that's, I think, what we create here, certainty, efficiency, and, and hopefully more, dis- more defensible decisions that lead to less conflict, and that's our goal for people. One of the things I mentioned earlier was the transparency,
1: um, promoting the transparency of the implementation of the statute. How do these rules address transparency? Do they?
0: Well, I think that uh, we're going to see. One of the things we did is we, for both of these rule packages, we went out and said, all right, these are our ideas. You give us any ideas you want. And that's the first time in a long time that both uh, Section 7 of the Act and uh, its entire reg portion and Section 4 have both been opened together. So I I fully expect that in the comment periods, we're going to get some ideas about transparency. Now, the service would say, and and by and large, it's their view that they are pretty transparent now. There is some disagreement about that, um, and I think we'll see what people – promote um, out out for us to to see and respond to. Um, and I'm hoping that we get comments about that um, going into the 24th of September.
1: So there's going to be plenty of people, um, not just the critics who think that you're getting a Nature Species Act, but others who actually don't think you're going far enough. Um, I don't know how you'd respond. But also, why is it just so difficult to, 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 to implement the ESA and, uh, and make changes to the the statute but also the agencies
0: themselves to, to make changes to the implementation of the statute well, that's a really good question um, our section 7 regulations have been in place um, since 1986 so that's a while There's probably some of you that weren't even born in 1986 in the room um, and uh, and those of us that were uh, have long stories about those decades but mm-hmm. um, here, here's what I'd say about that um first People are passionate about the Endangered Species Act, and that's a good thing. Um, the goals of the ESA are good. I think that um, I think that a society that says we need to um, uh, be interested in preserving uh, wildlife is a, is a, is is really a good thing for society. Um, my my sense on why it's hard. I mean, I, I don't have to focus on legislation, so I don't have to. Really, answer why you know what you would need to do to get sixty votes. That's hard, um, but I, w- I can tell you what it's like at the Department of the Interior to work on these issues. And and here's what I would say, and I, and I won't use um, these regs as an example. When I was first asked to be the solicitor of the department, that's basically the general counsel. I knew that, um, and this was in uh, in the mid two thousands. I knew that I was going to have to work even though I had tried to pretty much avoid it most of my career, I was gonna to have to spend a lot of time on the Endangered Species Act. And I was a little nervous because um, I knew that there were a lot of lawyers in the solicitor's office that had spent um, their entire careers not only on the act, but just on little subsections of that act. And, um, and they were gonna be very prepared. So what I asked for was the entire legislative history of the ESA, and uh, we had a, at that time, our, our kids were very, very little, and my wife and, and I were planning to go on a vacation to, I think, Dewey, um, great place to go with, uh, with small kids, right? So we went to Dewey, and I said, look, I'm not leaving the house the entire week and a half. And she was like, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm reading the entire, I'm going to study the entire legislative history of the ESA. And I spent my time doing that. So then, when I went back and met with the solicitor's office, uh, and started with basically um, not not a consensus within the solicitor's office about how um, we should approach certain questions that obviously needed to be answered, because just like the Obama administration, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service at that time was issuing dis- listing decisions that were indefensible, i.e., we couldn't support them in court, and so. Um, you know, the lawyers uh, in the Solicitor Arts Office were divided on different issues, and we uh, sat down with them and worked through those issues. I challenged the lawyers to think um, about the respective views of their colleagues. Uh, they put in the time, and I put in the time, and um, and it was a big effort. It was such a big effort that when I got ready to finally issue an opinion on this, um, one of the lawyers came up who had been leading the team, and he said, hey, um, you know, there's a so there's a process in the solicitor's office where lawyers can say, hey, we worked on this opinion, and you put a little paragraph in your opinion. I said, yeah, I know that, but no one wants to be on this opinion. I mean, goodness gracious, it's going to be controversial. And um, and he said, well, I think people do. And I said, well, that's awkward because I can't ask them or it looks coercive. Um, so we thought about it, and I said, look, if they really want their name on it, they um, can go tell my secretary, but they need to know it's not like my former office holiday party which was uh, viewed as discretionary but like if you didn't show up you weren't getting your bonus for that year so um so um you know i said look it's really 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 discretionary and they all did that they all put their name on it It was great so fast forward a year or two and i'm out in the private sector and i give it get i was asked to do a panel like this and there was a wildlife advocate who got up and completely blasted this opinion that was years old and um, so I got up, and I basically didn't know how to react to that, because, look, I you know I wasn't the department's lawyer anymore. People are free to say what they want. Um, so I told the story I just told you about them wanting to be part of it. And as I got ready to leave, an Obama administration official came over and grabbed me. And the official said to me, hey, I want you to know that I've heard that story somewhere else. And I said, no, you haven't, because I haven't ever told them somewhere else and he said well that's not true the people at the department told me that story when I started looking into what we ought to do with your opinions and I thought that that was interesting and so the lesson of that long story is here's what I think I think that we're tasked uh, agents uh, agency officials are tasked with trying to do the best job they can what that requires is that we do the heavy lifting to prepare Force um, folks, folks to come to the table, work with us, and make the best decisions we can and put them out for public review, and let the chips fall where they may. And as long as we do that, I think we'll be okay. Thanks. Uh,
1: let's take some questions from the audience, and if you have a question, just raise your hand and state your name and affiliation. and and ask a question, not a comment, Um, right here.
0: So um the comment period timeline is the comment period timeline unless it expands so right now I would say it's the 24th of September, and that's what people should be aware of um, in terms of the timing of a decision um, or a finalization of a package um, I think that really depends on the comments and um, you know um, this the these were joint rules. Um, at least two of the rule packages are joint and then the 40 d rule is just ours um, and we'll have to see what we get and um, how substantive the comments are and and what they mean I mean you know some may be things that we didn't contemplate in the rules at all um, we specifically asked some questions in the preamble that are different than what were included in the reg text and we'll have input on that so I think we'll look at the comments and we'll decide now as a matter of practice um, from my perspective, our job is to get our work done um, in a fairly expeditious manner. So I would be optimistic that we would move forward at a pretty good clip, um, assuming that we can um, uh, look at you know look at the comments and figure out how we want to once we decide how to proceed. Anybody else? You've got a question
1: right there. Jonathan Wood with the Pacific Legal Foundation, the Property Environment Research Center. You mentioned some of the conservation benefits of 4-D reform, which in the proposed rule is only prospective. Um, Do you think there's an opportunity to develop a process to look at some of the currently listed species and whether they, too, could benefit from that sort of creativity?
0: Well, I think that, um, you know, we don't propose that in the rule. And I think that, you know, one of the things we have to think about in administering the Act is, just our, um, our, our ability to, to manage the processes. Uh, at the same time, there are um, contemplated regular review periods for looking at um, issues associated with uh, listed species, and I don't think it's with that beyond the realm of possibility to be thinking about how those uh, review periods might be utilized for just such projects just like that. And we may get comments that suggest that we really need to rethink our approach there. And we'll, we'll see what we get.
1: Another question? Hi, I'm Matthew Daly with the Associated Press. I just wanted to ask you about the uh, element of the
2: cost-benefit analysis instead of just making the decisions based on the best available science.
0: Well, um the, the ESA is interesting in that, in um, and there's lots of My wife says none of it's interesting, by the way. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's probably, uh, it, it's all your perspective. But here, here's the reality. Um, the listing component of the Endangered Species Act um, has a standard of solely the best available, and we, we put it up for you. Um, but there are other provisions of the Act um, where it's not solely uh, the best available data and science it's more policy oriented and you see that for example in the in the uh, 4b2 exclusions for uh, critical habitat and those are that's an example where congress after reading the teleco dam case in 1978 said hey this this listing stuff seems okay but this critical habitat stuff seems to make us nervous and so what they did is they said we're going to give the secretary the authority to exclude areas from critical habitat designation unless they would uh, result in the extinction of the species. I think is the, the term, and um, and they could the secretary could do that for any um, uh, r- relevant reason. Uh, very broad authority. They also at the same time said, "Oh my gosh, we ought to set up a committee." Um, in certain instances to um, To to make these Determinations that things look a little different and so they set up the endangered What's what's commonly referred to these as, as the Endangered Species Committee So there there are within the law places where Congress has said this is these are our policy considerations at different times different administrations have used those differently and and for um, folks in the service, some of those are challenging, like the exemption process, because it is policy more than um, more than purely a scientific or factual area, and and so sometimes um, they've looked at that. The last administration issued some guidance on that. Uh, we may we may take a look at that or utilize those um, ex- exclusion um, parameters um, maybe differently than they did. So there are places where where policy uh, comes in very clearly. But for listing determinations, that's really not one of those places. The, the place where listing policy, if you will, comes in is on those phrases that we talked about a little bit. But you can't go so far into pure policy that you get outside of my green circle, if you will. Um, because otherwise, that's an impermissible reading of that statute. Question right here. Jeff Small with the Western Caucus, uh, Deputy Secretary. Thank you for being here. Appreciate your work. I think with a uh, you know 45-year-old law and a, a 3% success rate, clearly there's a lot um, you know Congress and the administration can do to modernize modernize this law and update it. So um, appreciate what you guys have put forth. I think it's it's um, it's bold and it's necessary, and, and appreciate your efforts there. Um, I guess my question is, over the years, we, you know, we've seen federal agencies have a different threshold in terms of the listing and delisting process. Namely, it's typically much harder to delist species than it is to list species. Uh, can you discuss how the department's proposed regs attempt to put the listing and delisting processes on an equal footing? So we try very hard um, to, to, to to stay in our regs uh, that we proposed that um the the five factor test that i put up for you uh in this dis- in this discussion that slide it's those five factors that matter period and um and that's for a determination of whether something uh is listed to be listed or whether it's to delist something that um is already listed and not that there's some uber standard for delisting um and we think that's close that homes very close to what Congress has already uh, said about the matter. Hi, I'm Brian C. a uh, consultant. But this back to this issue of uh, listing determinations, I think there's been a lot of uh, confusion uh, in the media coverage because uh, a lot of the media coverage makes it sound as if uh, these uh, sort of uh, economic analysis is going then to be part of the... Listing determination, my understanding is that the economic analysis will be there, separate, published, but then the listing determination will still be based on the best scientific and commercial data. So I think there's been, I think, some real kind of confusion. Is that your understanding? I wonder if you might be able to clarify. Well, first off, as a point of fact, you're absolutely correct that all listing decisions will be made solely on the basis of the statutory requirement plus the five-factor analysis that's it um what where whether it's um confusion or obfuscation or um deliberate misinterpretation um i'm not here to judge uh those um the motivations of those that have tried to say what um, is um is not accurate um, what they point to is this, that the existing regs have a provision that say without reference to I believe is the terminology and And um, and you know at the end of the day um, Whether or not the, uh, the Economic impacts are referred to at all seems to me to be not highly irrelevant the question is whether or not uh, we applied the appropriate standards, which are the best available scientific and commercial data, and whether we applied it to the five standards. And so you're absolutely right. There is nothing that says the listing decisions themselves will be made in accordance with economic um, economic uh, impacts as a as a determinant. It can't happen. We don't have the authority to do that. If anybody wants to do that, they can work with Congress to figure that one out. You
1: point out, in the the Clean Air Act in setting the uh, national I ambient mean, air quality standards. EPA is not supposed to consider it costs, but they develop the cost-benefit analysis, make that transparent and public, and it's, it's important for the public to see what the costs and the benefits are. Now, I have questions about how EPA does this cost and benefits their analysis, but at least it's out there for the public, and nobody is claiming that the EPA is. Um, improperly setting the, the standards as a result of that CBA, the cost benefit analysis that it does. And I think one of the problems, one of the things I mentioned earlier, was that there's not enough transparency with the Endangered Species Act, in my opinion. I don't think that the public really knows what the true costs are of implementation of this law, especially to property owners. And to, to the extent that these proposed rules can help to promote transparency, I, I think that can only be a benefit to the public and also species protection.
0: Well, there's a a very subtle point, too, that's not, uh, I mean, people don't see a lot, and that is one time, a time that these uh, economic impacts often come up are with the designation of critical habitat. But if you were to look at the court's rationale on some of those, and even, frankly, some of my own opinions on the matter, what you'd see is that a number of the costs that people are excited about are costs that um, are really attributable, in many people's opinion, to the listing. So the reality is there is a cost associated with listing. You don't need to um, uh, say it's a determinative factor or a factor at all in your determination. But what you're saying is it's not it's not a free choice by society, and that that I think is a reality that everybody can agree on. We had a question right here.
1: Uh, Alan Koska from Bloomberg. Um, When you mentioned um, unoccupied habitat, uh, I think the law contemplates that if the existing habitat just isn't enough for the species' survival, then unoccupied habitat can be designated. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that? And if you – if you're inclined to talk about a certain frog that's in the
0: Supreme Court these days, feel free. Well, I'm not gonna take you up on that one um, the uh, the the reality um, is that for all but a few years of um, practice with the um, Endangered Species Act um, it's been commonly understood that you focus first on the areas where the species actually exist in designating critical habitat before you jump to uh, and, and ask yourself whether those are sufficient uh before you jump to the question of of designating unoccupied critical habitat particularly unoccupied critical habitat that doesn't even have the features that the species needs to exist within that area and um you know that is that was a policy choice of the prior administration and we um we have, in our proposal, said we're going back um, to the long-standing interpretation and application of the law. Another question?
1: Here.
2: Here. Michael Doyle, how much internal resistance from NOAA Fisheries or Fish and Wildlife Service have you uh, experienced as a result of
0: these proposals? Um, that I'm aware of, uh, incredibly, I mean, well, I don't, I, am going to say none because, um, here's, here's, uh, what we did. Uh, we brought in, um, we brought in a group of folks who are, um, the experts throughout the country on the Endangered Species Act. We put them in a room We walked through what um, issues were out there that should maybe be addressed, gave them some direction, and they went forward and worked on them. And here's the way the process works. And I think that, you know, we owe it to these people. Um, You know, they typically, um, a team is working on something, and they come to a point of agreement or disagreement. And what they do is they elevate it up, um, first to their management, and then, to the extent necessary, above that to policymakers, and the policymaker says, "Hey, here's the cut, here's the cut," and then um, back uh, they go. And you know, we 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 tried to make sure that we had a, a system set up that allowed for a full discussion of the debate or a full engagement of dialogue uh, with the experts, and then for them to be able to elevate things quickly, and for us to be able to give them. Direction to the extent that they wanted it quickly and resolve um, any issues between the two agencies um, There's also an entire process that every role goes through where it's proposed and then it goes from the two agencies over to OMB and it's circulated in an interagency review and that process has a, process has a similar process where people um, weigh in I think that um, I think though that um you know, 99.9% of the folks at the Department of the Interior um, understand, like, look, you know, we have policy views, the prior administration had policy views, and, you know, they're there to do their job, and their job includes uh, helping us do our job. And I think that they uh, respect that, we respect their roles. and. I think if you talked to the people that were on those teams they would they were likely tell you that they thought the process was pretty good from their perspective and that's really the only frame of reference I have Mike
1: any more questions the audience more question just one question I have is I think it's important for the regulated community to have consistency um, Across the agencies to what extent do these proposed rules going to help with that?
0: Well, that that is one thing I think we'll see a lot of comment about I I am very interested to see the comment from other agencies and see how other agencies uh, Perceive these regs because in many ways the services have leaned forward to try and um, Incorporate their material by reference make things better Um, but who knows, you know your perspective depends on where you stand and so I, I expect that we'll get some comment on that in this process and certainly some comment from the regulatory community or the regulated community on whether we've gone too far or if we've inadvertently created additional ambiguities that are troubling to them. We'll hear those concerns, just like we hear um, concerns and comments from the environmental advocate community, and we look forward to hearing them all. So thanks. I just
1: thought of something real quick. Um, we talk about regulated community. I, mean, I think the reality is under the ESA, some people may not think of themselves as a regulated community under the statute, and then find out, oh wait, I am. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it really impacts can impact almost
0: anyone. Right. So that that's one of the um, the realities of the act is, um, and, and and you know everybody wants to sort of you know, um, avoid this issue in some ways, but here's a reality of the act. Um, the Congress has said, "Look, we, we need to make this a priority; these issues a priority." But the costs, the true costs of the act, are often borne by folks that just happened to be in a particular geographical um, area um, where a particular species uh, exists, and you know those costs, the the cost to them can be significant. You know, to their property, to their life. Um, and those costs aren't completely socialized uh, throughout society. You know, we don't remunerate people for those costs, um, and that's that's a um, that is really one of the areas of the act that you know perhaps wasn't perfectly sanded uh, when they passed it. Is those costs aren't borne by society; they're borne by the folks that live there, and and that that does mean that they are carrying a burden that we're all theoretically benefiting. All right, one final question
1: right here.
2: Uh, RJ Smith with CEI. Uh, Assuming that these new programs of efficiency and transparency and so on really don't do that much to help species recover or end all the conflict, I mean, are are there people who would really like to go back and see things sort of reopened and a fresh look at this? You know, who have realized, because there are lots of scholars who have argued that it's the completely compulsory nature of the act, the thing you were just talking about, with the burden all falling on landowners, particularly those landowners, the guys who are the best stewards are usually the guys who pay the most, they're the guys who are shut down. And the perverse incentives in the act causing these problems were landowners have incentives to sterilize their land, to harvest their trees on an earlier plantation, to replant in different kinds of trees that species won't use, all these vast problems if we could eventually find a way to move towards away from a, a compulsory system to an incentive- based voluntary system, it, it would certainly help resolve almost all those problems. I mean we, we've saved lots of you know species in the past but we' saved wood ducks because millions of people were not afraid to put up wood duck boxes on their land, but no one in his right mind would ever put up a spotted owl nest box on his land because then he couldn't harvest his trees and you get no compensation. I mean, that's a ticking time bomb that's always sitting under the act, and it's something that few people ever really, really bring up. I mean, we've been spinning our wheels on the act for 45 years, and 3% of the species have recovered.
0: Well, I, I personally think that the Endangered Species Act, pretty much as we know it, is, is here. Uh, it's is been with us for a while, and it will continue to be, and. And, and the goals of the act, I think, are good goals. Um, do I think that there are areas that could be uh, sanded and refined and improved? The answer is sure, and we're happy to work with Congress on that. Um, where we, I think, can make a difference is, you know, number one, the administra- different administrations have, have tried to ensure that there's greater uh, conservation cooperation, um, providing uh, safe harbors and assurances, and a lot of those programs continue. I do think our um, proposal on the 4-D role helps with that significantly. It could create a real incentive um, for species that uh, may be threatened, but we want to encourage particular um, conservation outcomes. And I see that as like a, a, a real and meaningful initiative. Um, you know, from but from where I sit, um, you know, I, I think that it's unlikely that folks are going to be proposing um change that 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 is quite in a scope of throwing the act out and i don't i don't think we're there yet in thinking about it um at all i mean what we're thinking about is how can we make the law work how can we do it in the best possible means and how can we do it in a way that's good for species and good for people and that's our focus right now thank you david thank you (laughs) join me thank you david
2: i you yeah.